The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. It looks like we're in for some fairly miserable weather. Leinster Rugby cancelling games. Red um, status warnings from Medair. And Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather is with us. Alan, how bad is it going to get and when is it going to get bad? Hi, Adam. Well, it's it's going to get very, very bad. It is. This is not the usual storm. It's not like storms that we've had this year. It's much more significant in terms of its impacts. So it's already feeling very windy and wet in many parts. But really from, you know, around 11 o'clock when that yellow wind warning comes into effect, it's going to start to really pick up. And then through this afternoon, increasing. So by 4 p.m., it's really going to start to get very, very strong gusts along with that heavy rain. And we have the red warning now issued for Galway, Mayo and Donegal coming into effect at five o'clock for Galway, Mayo and then later at nine o'clock for Donegal because the worst of the winds will move to the northwest later this afternoon, this evening. But it's going to be very, very windy right across the country, really from four or five o'clock onwards. And it's going to stay that way until after midnight. So you're looking at a, a prolonged period of very strong gusts, a gust in excess of 110 kilometres an hour across much of the country and in excess of 130 kilometres an hour in those western and northwestern areas. In old money, that's what, 90 miles an hour? That's, that's a fair wind speed, isn't it? It is. That's what I'm saying. This is going to be a significant storm. You know, people probably are used to weather warnings, but we very rarely get a red weather warning. They are very rare. Um, and it's very rare to see the entire country to have an orange warning. So this isn't your normal storm, I suppose. It's just trying to get people to pay heed to that. I know there's a lot of people will have plans and they'll be travelling, but really travelling conditions are really going to be very rough um, this evening and early tonight. Well, broadcaster and author Valerie Cox is, is here with uh, David Davenpower and John Lee to talk about the papers. And Valerie was very disparaging about the threat of this storm and was making points along the lines of how tough people are in rural Ireland where she lives and that she didn't really have to take it that seriously. What you're saying is she's wrong. She is. And if, like me in rural Ireland, she's relying on power for everything to do with your well water and everything else, power outages are probably going to be the biggest issue for a lot of people, especially in the West and the Northwest. But no, I mean, I think we get a bit of storm fatigue. The fact that we're already at I and it's only the middle of January is very unusual. But this one does look like the real deal. Alan, really appreciate your time this morning. That's Alan O'Reilly from uh, Carlo Weather. And I, I shouldn't talk about her in her presence and not officially introduce her. Valerie Cox is with us to uh, go through the papers this morning, as is uh, John Lee, executive editor of the Daily Mail Group Ireland and David Davenpower, broadcaster and commentator. Folks, you are all very welcome. Putting weather to one side, the issue that is everywhere this weekend, and it has been everywhere for quite some time, is the issue of immigration. The front page of the uh, Independent, David, leading with six housing hubs planned as migrant crisis escalates. And this is on on top of a picture of people in high-vis vests marching down the street, um, surrounded by signs saying, Ross Grey is full, 6,000 people, no hotel. I've rarely seen an issue where the government has been running so conspicuously to catch up with uh, with developments. I mean, it, it, at this stage, really, it's almost laughable were it not so serious that the government is contemplating uh, more housing hubs. I mean, this has been coming a long time. Uh, we see in, in John's paper, the Mail on Sunday, the astonishing amounts of money being paid to private companies. A hundred million, I think, in, in just six months for uh, companies putting up asylum seekers and uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. I mean, just to pluck one figure out of the 
the, the, the one well known, well well known individual in GA circles, Banty uh, uh, McEnany's firm, was paid twenty three million euro uh, in between January and June of last year. Um, he's the second on the list. Uh, a company called Cape Roth was paid twenty nine million euro in the same uh, in the same uh, period, and of course. This shows the amount of money that is to be made uh, housing asylum seekers and those um, uh, uh, and Ukrainian migrants or Ukrainian refugees. And I think this feeds into the Sunday Independent story because the government is planning to buy these housing hubs. Uh, it seems obviously the, the, the planning and all the rest of it would mean they wouldn't, uh, if they were to commence building them, they wouldn't be ready for a number of years. So the people who are selling these obviously have the ball at their feet. Uh, the government will certainly be paying top dollar uh, for anything that it uh, it purchases. And when we're talking given, housing given, hubs, given is this former hotels? Is this is, is it <clears> detailed as to what sites they're going to use or what they're looking for with all of this money? It's not really clear. <clears throat> I beg your pardon. Um, although uh, the one hint is given in the piece in the Sunday Independent by Hugh O'Connell and Jody Corcoran where it says, uh, it likens the uh, facilities to the kind of, uh, it'll be on the scale uh, on which the City West Hotel in West Dublin is operating. Of course, that's that's vast. I can't imagine uh, that there are many facilities like that going and begging around the country. Um, so, Well, the Sunday Indo has very um, kindly uh, uh, refused to name the, um, and I'm not, this is not a criticism of the Sunday Indo, it's a criticism of the people who they've liaised with. Um, have said, oh, we're not going to tell you where these are going to be because we're afraid people are going to, this is the level of control the state has over law and order in Ireland now. We're afraid people go and burn them down. Now, I did talk, and and here's a hot exclusive for you, I did talk to a couple of cabinet ministers over the last couple of days. I was working on another project all week, so I wasn't enmeshed in this as I often am. And they mentioned Thornton Hall, uh, um, which is a site that was bought for a prison and nothing really happened to it. Um, this was McDougal's big project, uh, yes, wasn't it? That yes. there would be a big mega prison there. But yeah, that would involve building, John. And go- yeah, government people can be can be um, calmed. I'm not revealing somewhere that can be burnt down because they never built anything there. Um, but something was in my mind that, oh God, I've heard that before. And I went back to a piece I'd written in March where the government had told me, we're going to deal with this immigration issue and we're going to put them into Thornton Hall and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I think what David said is, is, is correct, that they are so far behind the, the, the curve on, on this. It's incredible. And then you ask yourself, why? And I cast my mind back to a number of conversations I had with ministers over the course of the year and how their tone has changed. And these were private conversations. And I'll just tell you what, they, you know, the kind of thing they were saying to me was, Ah, these people protesting, you know, they're just a bunch of racists and you know, they've no real legitimacy here. And they seemed to feel that it was a small number of people who didn't have legitimate complaints about what was being said. It was based somewhat on racism and they ignored it till the city erupted as it did a, f- a few months ago. And now they've realised very belatedly that this is going to be a live, very, very difficult to deal with election issue and they're they're all over the place. Uh, Valerie, is this, because the place. Of a, is this because of a, a misunderstanding of a rural-urban split, that there is a sense at national policy and big city level that it is a, a, a matter of ideology or of racism. But when you talk to people in small villages, what I'm hearing from discussions, particularly with hoteliers and with small business owners, is they say, the one hotel in the town now goes 
With that goes cafe business, restaurant business, all that goes with it. So it is almost a function of the economic life of the town that we are concerned about Absolutely. rather than it being ideology. Um, there's one hotel in Wicklow Town, uh, the Grand, and that is now housing asylum seekers. And the hotel is off limits, you know. I mean, <clears> people <throat> used to go in there for lunch. There were events held there. Yeah. There's very few hotels the in Wicklow, is you know. The same in Rusgrave. So, I mean, this is what affects local people. Also, they weren't very happy because they were. it was an old male cohort that went in there. And, you know, that upsets the balance of any small town or village because we do not have 300 males whom we don't know living together, except maybe in the old days in a monastery. But beyond that, you know, we just we just don't. And the government doesn't seem to get this. They've made so many mistakes. And I would blame the government for the current position where we're having arson threats. And even uh, this morning, there's a Never report. mind threats. Well, th- arson. Th- yes, absolutely. And the men with um, weapons... Uh, coming to the Buzz Bridge Centre that's supposed to be open, threatening security staff, that kind of thing. But there's actually a piece in the Sunday Independent this morning that I think is very valid from the uh, Clare TD, Al McNamara. And he's just pointing out some of the mistakes that we're making. I thought it was quite interesting because he says... um, Nobody's allowed to board a plane to Dublin Airport without travel documents. And if they get in without documents, they are then brought to court. This is the law. And asked, you know, why don't you have them? Should we deport you? Should we let you stay or whatever? But he says lots of people are arriving in Dublin and probably ditching their travel documents because they've got on the other end. And, you know, we're putting up with that. And also he's criticising the delays in processing people looking, now I'm not talking about the Ukrainians obviously, but people seeking asylum here. The delays, delays that he says up to a year, they go on a lot longer than that. And his broad thesis is the the laws relating to immigration are not being enforced. That if somebody comes in without travel documents, they should have to give a legitimate excuse to a judge that a exactly. judge believes. And, that's and he's not being, being very fair because this is the law. He's not saying don't let people in, don't let people apply for asylum. But he's just pointing out all the mistakes we're making. And he's also saying that a lot of the numbers that the government is quoting are people who are here awaiting a decision mm-hmm. and who've been awaiting a decision for a long time and we're including them in the new numbers. But there seems to be a bit of an information deficit about the whole area. I mean, Padre Tobin, the Aintu leader and TD, has highlighted the fact, uh, which I found really quite striking, uh, that 70% of uh, uh, people seeking international protection actually turn up at the office in Mount Street and the minister, uh, 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 Helen McEntee, has no visibility on, on how they actually entered the state. So they tr- turn up actually at the hatch, if you will, uh, applying for... The first that we know of their presence. Exactly. Is there yeah. there appear to be no statistics. Now, you can surmise <clears throat> that it, the, many of them may have come through Belfast, come across the our very porous border, which for obvious reasons we don't want to police. But there does seem to be a, a, a paucity of information and uh, detail about how these uh, how individuals actually get here. You talked about the government failing to, to wrap arms around it and, and failing to recognise the significant nature of the problem. How has it come to pass that that's the case? Because this is not something that just grown <coughs> overnight like Topsy. We have a year and a half, two years of this developing. I think we wrapped ourselves in our well-deserved reputation for hospitality and we ignored the hard facts coming down the line that this is not going to stop, that this is a global movement of people uh, f- fleeing sub-Saharan Africa and fleeing uh, places of conflict like Afghanistan. It's not a a temporary phenomenon. I think we thought that, uh, 
you know, we wrapped our arms around the Ukrainians. We were extremely hospitable and I think we deserve a lot of credit. But I think we didn't look at the long picture about uh, how this would how this phenomenon had to be dealt with in the long term because there's no doubt about it, mass migration is not going away. But is the underlying problem that we don't want mass immigration of any nature even if we are providing accommodation that is fit for purpose or is it that we are happy to have it, we just don't want towns and villages within appropriate numbers. I think we're happy to have it. Yeah. I think we're happy to have it, but I think it just, uh, it it has to be managed and it isn't being managed at the moment. uh, Symbolic of the lack of management was a a war broke out in Ukraine and the EU um, rightly said to member states, you will be given a certain number of people to, uh, to accommodate. And states were then free to set down the rules by which they admitted people. But Ireland, for reasons that can't be explained, and it wasn't to do with hospitality and it wasn't to do with uh, empathy, um, but real, really mismanagement, decided to admit Ukrainian refugees under, on, under boutique legislation which had been set down for Syrian refugees in 2015. And that provided all Ukrainian refugees with uh, all the social welfare rights of an Irish citizen. It was a complete catastrophe. It has added huge amounts to, uh, of, of, of cash to the payments that we had to put out. And Leo Varadkar admitted in the Dáil in, in November that um, they realised that 30% of the Ukrainian refugees were coming here as a second destination. So they arrived in Germany or Belgium and were told, Ah, oh, Jade, what are you doing here? You're going to Ireland. Not only do you get free accommodation, but you get social welfare of a level of a person who's been working there for 20 years. And you would not blame them for so doing if you were in the same... No, no, but sure. They're a fleeing system. war and no one doubts their bona fides and that. But, you know, you go where you get the best accommodation. So, uh, as I say, there's an underlining reason there, I think, for the lack of management. And, uh, and I'm not one of these uh, uh, anti-woke warriors but there has been an element of, of unreality in government where people feel, oh, you know, to, to express views that, that are, are, are somehow sceptic, sceptical of how we manage our, 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 our uh, immigrants, our people coming into the country is somehow of the far right. It is, it's, just, it's just plain wrong. And if you look across Europe, a lot of issues that would have been seen as of the right 10 years ago, 12 years ago, are no longer the case. And they're no longer, that's no longer the case because they made huge mistakes. You mentioned the issue of management. There's a piece that I think Hugh O'Connell's writing in the Sunday Independent. I don't know if you saw, but he, he refers to, I think, Brazilian immigrants arriving into an immigrant centre with nobody to greet them and that the first people who met them were protesters asking to see their passports and papers. Yes, I read that. It was unfortunate, but I mean, given the scale of the operation uh, trying to accommodate uh, people seeking international protection, I have to say mistakes will happen. This was a mistake. Obviously, the word didn't get through to officials to actually be there to greet these people, and it was very unfortunate. Uh, But I do think that by and large, the system, I mean, it causes a lot of trouble, but the system works relatively smoothly in the sense that um, people are accommodated. It's Obviously, you have issues like Ross Gray, which are very high profile. 
and do really crystallise the problem. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago an urban-rural divide. I was very struck during the week by hearing a commentator, a journalistic colleague, it must be said, uh, railing against the people of Ross Cray, saying the sense of entitlement they had, that they they felt they needed a hotel to have their first Holy Communion. How dare they? I thought that was a very metropolitan view, you know. Uh, but it's funny, there's a text that, that supports your line of thinking there. It says, it is not the hotel owners that are the problem. Obviously, the owner can make more money from this than as a regular hotel. Maybe the locals need to frequent it more. But of course, that there is a big economic driver for a hotelier in this. If you know that you are going to be able to fill the place with relatively low labour costs mm. for yeah. months, if not years... That's a very tempting solution yeah. rather than trying... There's quite interesting pieces in um, several of the papers today talking about other people who are asked to take um, refugees. And one B&B lady said, you know, she was being offered over 100 a night per person to take 10 people, but she didn't want to get into that and she didn't do it. But it is, you know, particularly if you're a hotelier maybe or, or a provider of some sort in the middle of winter and you're offered something like that, uh, you know, total occupancy. It's a very tempting offer. I don't think we should be, you know, objecting to that or complaining about these people because they have a business to run. It's, you know, it's like people providing food to the refugees. Should we be criticising this great big order that they've suddenly got? We can't. But I think, you know, David was right when he's talking about us not being prepared for it in that when the refugees started to come in, yes, we were very friendly, but we were treating it like this is our own little tiny small group. And certain towns were fabulous at it. I know Ennis was brilliant. And they provided welcome parties and brought them into their homes and all the rest of it. And then you see, you suddenly realise this is part of such a big mm. global thing yeah. that it's, it's And there not was also an scale. assumption, I think, at the start, maybe I'm wrong on this, but my understanding was the view at the start was that this whole Ukraine-Russia thing would be a relatively quick process and people would be able to go home. There was all the thing of take people into your house and yeah. then years on, there's no sign of anything. But you know, there's another thing with that, Anton, because we've got to realise that the Ukrainians living in Ireland now, they're not all poor people. They have means, they have savings. Many of them are working from here, particularly those who can work online. So it's very reasonable to expect these people after a few, a couple of months or whatever to be able to support themselves. And we're just not doing that. You raised a question before about the, the kind of a concern there is particularly about uh, male, groups of male asylum seekers, uh, um, tech saying, why can't male asylum seekers be housed with families and single women? The government has created a split and helps create worries about these single men. Housing them together takes away a reason for communities to complain. The Refugee Council on News Talk went through checks that are done on asylum seekers, in other words, fingerprints, etc. So it must be safe to house all asylum seekers together. And if officials say it's not appropriate to house all asylum seekers together, I would ask why. Surely there are no risks. 53106 at a cost of 30 cent if you want to get in touch or 87 106 Inside the Business Post, Shane Coleman is saying, and I think it's a view that uh, John Lee reflects what your view was, is Shane Coleman is saying this is going to be the political issue as we roll into the elections. We'll discuss the political implications of it after this break. The other thing that's making the uh, papers this weekend is RTE in a, in a couple of uh, different um, manners. We will get to that in one second just before we round out the issue to do with immigration. A text saying, has it occurred to anyone that the EU's loyalty to our Ireland and Brexit had to be repaid somehow and it may have been put to us that we had to go above and beyond for Ukrainian refugees. Another, a lot of the hotels would have closed anyway without the refugee income. Another, the missing travel document situation is way overdue for action but nothing is being done. 
Our permanent, mostly Dublin-focused government has a perennial bad attitude to mere taxpayers. They are not worth listening to, it seems. However, our rural hotels are where births, deaths and marriages are celebrated and they will not be given up on demand. So, John, to the point that you were making earlier, is this then the de-political issue as we come into locals, nationals, Europeans and presidential? Immigration, it'll be, it'll be an issue that needs to be managed with, with nuance and, um, and care. Uh, I, I, st- I still think the issues that will dominate will be the old reliables, housing and health as we come to it. But one would not have predicted four years ago um, that that immigration and a war in the Far East, would, in, sorry, in the, in the East, would, would dominate our political agenda as they are now. So they, they will play a role, but uh, let's not forget that housing plays a huge role in immigration. I mean, the main pro- reason we have such issues with it is because we've nowhere to put Im- um, immigrants because we know where to put our own population. Um loathes I have to say it in some ways because our, our newspaper has been very critical of, of um, housing policy in Ireland. I think there actually is a narrative out there where where they have improved somewhat. The, 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 oh my God, the, it's the a long road so, to travel. Somewhat. And and again, when we're speaking about elections, I, I think that this, um, this other narrative that there will be somehow an early election is flawed for one particular reason. I think that they'll get a lot of houses built in the period between late uh, um, late this year and early next year. There has so to be certain I would, logic to that. I would they, hang they on, want to get I would hang on to early next year yeah. well, for I, the general election. I'm told that in a couple of departments at least there's a working assumption uh, that there'll be an election in the autumn and that the decks are being cleared over the summer. Uh, so I don't agree with John. Uh, I think there'll be a, bu- uh, a budget. Make sure, make sure this is put out as a podcast. <laughs> and uh, everyone remembers who was right. Exactly. Um, the, the, um, you can say anything you like on the radio. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> I, I think there's a strong case that the government will have a, a budget immediately after the summer recess and toot sweet head uh, for the country. I don't see that there's any point in hanging around into, into the new year. I don't... I, John is right. Uh, I, I know John shares my... Why is there no... Re- I, do, no I know John shares my, my admiration for uh, Dara O'Brien, the dynamic <laughs> housing minister uh, and the great job he's doing. But I'm not quite my sure... My local man. I'm not quite sure that um, uh, the housing numbers will uh, improve appreciably between uh, autumn and spring. So I don't, I don't see the logic, John, quite frankly, in hanging on. And I see plenty of logic in going immediately after a budget. We will stick a pin in this. In autumn of 2024, we will dig out this broadcast, bring both of you back in, and one of you can declare victory when we get to that point. We do need to move on to discuss RTE because there's a number of stories relating to RTE. One on the front page, Larry Bass, former board member of RTE, is going to be with us after uh, 11 o'clock to talk about what the Business Post is reporting which is that there's going to be a €15 monthly levy on your broadband bills. This is one of the possibilities to replace the TV licence fee. So what's that? 180 quid a year additional on your broadband cost for the fun of RTE existing. And I do accept that there are other uh, broadcasters funded in part from that fund, though it is relatively infinitesimal compared to the amount that RTE gets. The other big story, Valerie, is that Oliver Callan, we heard yesterday, is going to be taking what was once the gay burn hour. Yeah, and uh, he said he had actually commiserated with Ryan Tuberty and now he's taking his job. So, <laughs> yeah. but it's a very interesting situation because he's getting 150 a year. Tuberty was offered 170 a year um, when they were at that stage in negotiations. But um, what about all his other work? What about his Callan's kicks? 
which goes out on RTE and which is paid through a separate company. What about all his personal gigs around the country? I mean, how does this work with Kevin Backert's talking about Nixers and other jobs and a register of interests? I'm not sure how that's going to work out because apart from anything else, it could annoy a lot of other people in RTE um, who are not able to do this kind of thing. And also, if you're doing something at nine o'clock in the morning, that usually includes one serious interview. How do you then turn around and be taken seriously if you're doing Callan's Kicks once a week. It's, I think it's a very odd situation. I think there's another issue too. I think the, the dynamic is probably going to shift a little bit because <clears throat> if he's earning his crust from RTE, how does he take the piss out of all the people uh, that uh, he's working with? So Callan's Kicks at the moment it kind of stands alone in a kind of a, 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 an odd way. Uh, that's going to stop, isn't it? It's going to change anyway. So I, 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 I'd be interested to see how that dynamic works out. I, I suspect um, both Valerie and, and, and David as RT veterans have probably had the mickey taken out of them by Oliver at some point. <laughs> I think Oliver, Oliver is, is a, a minor issue when it comes to the, the holistic and global issues facing RTE. So, you know, presenters, they do something that we can see visibly and tangibly. And if they go off and make a few quid in the side, that's their business. I have always felt throughout this RTE um, saga, and we've broken off a lot of stories. What I don't see is an understanding that the organisation is bust, it is bankrupt, it has lost its only real means of income um, on the level that they had it a year ago, which let's not forget is a state income. The licence fee is enforced by the courts Mm. and people have stopped paying it in their droves. And what we don't see is a replacement for it. We see elsewhere now yet another idea coming out of government from a cross-party departmental group Yada, yada, yada. I was told a few months ago by Cabinet that revenue were going to enforce the collection of the licence fee. The Maybe I was wrong, but the, certainly the people but who revenue, told me... Revenue have pushed back, I think, John. Were, were wrong. Since then. But re- revenue have probably outlined the difficulties with that. So, again, and I will say said this on your show last time I was on discussing RTE, I think a critical point is going to come sometime in spring, which uh, an appalling vista like face the Irish banks at one point where they're told, sorry, there's no money left. And then everything will then everything will come to a crisis and all that middle management, we don't know what they do, will be will be told very quickly that we're, there's no room for you anymore. We're, we're nearly, is it two years or three years? Two years down the line from across, from a, 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 a review of the, it was the um, Commission on the Media, on the Future of Media, where a proposals were put forward for reforming the funding of RTE and the government still haven't acted on that. But never mind, that 10 is, years ago. That I is the real issue, not Oliver Callan getting a few extra 2013, quid. 2013, Pat Rabbit brought a memo to Cabinet saying this needs to be a media charge and it was on the cusp That's of right. going through his legislation and nothing happened. The water charges happened. That's what happened. Was that what happened? That's what happened and the government then ran a million miles from the idea of another household charge. Uh, of course, there ha- will have to be, this is a very interesting proposal because it's my understanding that the revenue commissioners don't want to collect the TV licence. Uh, for one reason, apparently the, the revenue theology is that they don't collect charges. They collect something that's related to the value of your property or the size of your income or whatever. But a standalone charge, a fixed charge is not part of the, their, their remit as they see it. Um, so 
I mean, I'm interested in this uh, levy on broadband uh, bills. I'd love to see what Virgin et al. will think about it. And I can certainly see litigation if the government press ahead with this. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's an interesting proposal. Um, I hear what John is saying. But iterations of that have been floated over the last yeah, year. What I'm saying I, is there's but, no urgency to any of this. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, well, what you were saying, John, is the kind of the Ivan Yates theory. Ivan, never one to, to, to understate his case, uh, <laughs> says that uh, RTE will face administration by uh, the middle of next year and the, the game will be up then. I don't know. That seems to me like... Well, just it, looking at the numbers, it does look like that's the direction it's heading. I mean, it is running at this uh, deficits of plus 10 million now uh, with no sign of that turning a corner. And they are waiting yeah, on a second bailout, don't forget. They are waiting on a second bailout. But if you look at the numbers uh, involved in, 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 say, housing um, uh, people seeking international protection and Ukrainian refugees, like the in- amount of money needed to bail out RTE for, say, a couple of years until a solution is, is, is secured. It's not all that much in broad terms. The government does not want to see the national broadcaster fall into administration. So I, I would be very surprised if it happened. But there's no doubt about it. The financial figures are pretty parlous. Yeah, well, the point, sorry, just, just quick briefly, Valerie, and the, the point I'm making is that, again, from government, it had been, it had been floated. We understand the import of to a degree, I, I'm, I'm not fully of the mind that a national broadcaster is as important as some people think it is. Um, for instance, one of the reasons we're told, oh, we need RTE covered elections. You and I discussed this recently. Mm. What, do you, what do you watch the US elections on? You watch it on CNN. That's a commercial organisation. The vacuum will be filled. But a rump organisation that provides some cer- certain state, um, state um, services can, can maintain, but the, the, the current model can't. But it's also worth pointing, just on that, John, it isn't just that it is uh, CNN that does, does the coverage. If you look at the the organisations that to some extent defined the quality of broadcast journalism, one of the ones that was prime amongst them was CBS and it is an independent organisation and, and always yeah, has been. But one thing I think we shouldn't lose in the middle of all this discussion is that the quality of what's coming out of RT is very, very good. I mean, the workers, I really feel sorry for the workers in there because, you know, is it? they've worked through... It is, how, absolutely. How I think the newsroom is doing an excellent job. And for example, we've had several big programmes come out in the last few weeks. Dervin MacDonald about the last nuns in Ireland. That was a superb piece. And I mean, maybe you didn't like it. You're no, smiling. no, I don't, I don't mean... But, you know, <laughs> but that's not the point. I the work point in is, a media organisation, Valerie. And, yeah. And we're in one here. And quality news can be produced on a certain level that doesn't descend into the into the, into the into the splurging of money that that organization is involved in i just i don't i don't believe that the current model is required to fund quality programming Financially, like you're probably like, right, like John. what Macdonald has done and also in the, in, in the future you know, yeah. Financially, you're probably kids aren't, right. But kids aren't but watching the talent is there. The creativity well, but, is there. But it's not the Derville McDonald program and the Ireland program. Yeah, but they were commissioned in. They weren't produced by RTE. I know that, but RTE obviously agreed as a bait for it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean RTE. I mean RTE is moving towards the publisher mode. I think. Uh, I mean, it's generating yeah. less and less original material itself. The days of the shiny floor programme are gone. I doubt we'll see another Dancing with the Stars. Uh, I mean, the amount, per, speaking personally, when you, look, when you look at the amount of money that's spent on a programme like Dancing with the Stars and you think of the number of independent productions that that might generate, that, that mo- some will be turkeys, 
Some will be good, some will be okay. But I think the days of splurging money on something that's a crowd pleaser is gone. Well, the man responsible for Dancing with the Stars will be with us after 11 o'clock. I can ask him. If I understand, if I remember rightly, I think the budget for Dancing with the Stars was bigger than the entire budget for 2FM. If I have that right, I must check that with, with Larry Bass when he comes in. There's more viewers than 2FM as listeners. The other thing that we should talk about that, Valerie, you got very exercised about uh, earlier is the road, the Rodentine massacre that's been going on <laughs> while we're talking well, RTE. apparently there is um, a rat infestation in well, RTE. Well, there's one. We know of one. No, no. There's been, oh, there oh, there's been se- several reports before this. Anton, have you looked around here recently? <laughs> anyway, I'm not casting aspersions on News Talk, but there's been a couple of instance where, you know, people have been terrified by rats running past them in the corridor and that. But this particular rat, um, there's a big picture in the mail on Sunday of a furry rat. I think it's Ratus Norvegicus we call them. Oh, a Norway rat. A very nice rat and the the caption says, furry tail rat posed by model. (laughs) Now, (laughs) so it wasn't the rat. The rat is now dead because a very brave RT person who is not being... Excuse me? It is the mail on... on no, 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 no. He's, 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 he's a model. He's making a, oh, a yeah, model. We've done work in there, so we had to get <laughs> oh, in Oh, sorry, John. But apparently, anyway, this rat entered the newsroom and terrified people. And a very brave RT journalist grabbed a bin and battered the rat to death. So that particular rat is going to gone. get a rat with a bin. Well, it is actually. It's very hard to kill a rat. It is, and at least with a broom, you've got a, a decent, you've got a decent sweep to coin a phrase of an area that you can cover. I but guess that's not in charge of contracting. Guys, yeah. <laughs> I mess but with why it. can Orchi not hire a rodent extermination agency? I mean, are we are we now saying, we're getting to the important stuff? Are we saying that with cutbacks? Are we saying that rodent extermination country uh, uh, organisations in Ireland are not capable of killing a few rats? I mean, that would be a, a, a terrible thing. Fine point. D- David is is looks like he is he is lifting his petticoats clear of all of this and doesn't want to get involved so we get something more significant No, no, no I'm uh, quite uh, willing to comment rats and RTE two legs and four legs And a lot of coverage this weekend of the possibility of Donald Trump what the probability of him taking the primary uh, nomination for the Republican Party and the possibility of him getting re-elected as president and John Lee has just returned from the the, be- the belly of the beast, Collier County in Florida, which is about as red a county as they come uh, in terms of being Trump supporting. What did you find and what did you see as the issues? Uh, I even went to Mass just to you know do a full a, a full study in, uh, in Naples. There's there's six or seven churches, uh, Catholic churches by the way, besides the Protestant, packed every day. And I saw a fellow leave Mass in a Ferrari after dropping a few quid in the in the in the in the pan, but. Um, and the small straw poll I'd done, an awful lot of the people I spoke to and almost universally would be Republican voters and had Trump voters. An awful lot of them said, felt that the events of um, in the Capitol had um, turned them somewhat against him. But uh, like here, the overriding issue, and, I, and this was from everyone, and we're not talking racist and we're not talking um, far right nutters, um, was immigration. And the week I was in uh, in the United States, the week, couple of weeks I was in the United States, figures have been released where 200,000 people a day are crossing the border from Mexico. And this, uh, this is affecting every, uh, every city. I'm speaking to friends of mine in Chicago, New York, where, where um, the governor of Texas is, is busing immigrants from uh, his border to New York and dumping them on the streets, dumping them on the streets of Chicago, anywhere that's democratically run. They're, 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 they're fobbing off that issue to them, they feel. 
So Trump is not the is not the pariah that he is seen to be here. Um, yes, a lot of people felt the capital um, w- w- was a step too far, and that may affect him. But still, the support is is for him there. And uh, I was just searching quickly through our paper. But is, that, is even that not extraordinary, John, where you say it was a step too far? It was an insurrection in which law enforcement officers were killed by rioters fomented by the man who's now seeking the presidency. And I, and I think that that may be the issue that, that that's held against him. But again, you know, when it comes to a general election, and it's a general election there when it comes to the president, it's 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 issues that affect people's pockets in the United States. And immigration is, is seen as a huge failing of Joe Biden. And I, I would refer to another piece. I was just lashing through our own paper here. I read it last night. I get the mail on Sunday from Britain on, on my on my iPad. And it's it's unfortunately not here. I hate to be I hate to say it, but you can probably find it online. Freddie Gray, who works for The Spectator, he's a wonderful writer in the United States. And he asks the question, why, um, with a man who has done all these things, do so many people vote for him? And they go through, he goes through a lot of the failings of Joe Biden. Now, this is a, this is a, a thesis presented and it, it, it can be questioned by anyone here. But he questions whether, um, <laughs> had the madman theory of the madman tactic of uh, diplomacy that Trump employed been still operative in the world, over the last four years, would Putin have invaded the Ukraine? Would Iran have um, instigated those attacks, as it undoubtedly did in Israel? Um, would a lot of things have happened if the despots of this planet had been as fearful of a greater madman in the United States than they are here? And he feels they wouldn't. And I think the, the effects that the United States pull out of Afghanistan will be felt around the globe and the catastrophe that happened there will be felt around the globe for the next 10 years, very much um, as the United States pull out from Vietnam uh, did in the 70s. And I think Biden is failing and Trump may well be back. And people have got to get their heads around the fact that, oh, Nikki Haley might come through or this, but that's not going to happen. He's going to be on the ticket. He's going to be on the ticket and he's a very, very good chance of winning. I I wonder was the, the critical moment for Biden four years ago when he chose Kamala Harris as his vice president um, she's been a total invisible failure. And after all, immigration was meant to be the issue that she was delegated to handle. And she obviously hasn't done a very good job. Biden is ageing. He's uh, frail betimes. I mean, the idea was that Kamala Harris would be a young, vigorous person of colour that would step up to the plate when Biden, and, and you know take some of the, 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 the strain off Biden. That plainly hasn't happened. Do vice presidents matter though? I mean you think back to Dan Quayle you look at Mike Pence I mean there's been an awful lot of wallies who've been vice president to no impact to their president. Oh that's true but I think when you have a president who's as you know uh, 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 well he's an older man to, to put it at its most decorous. And I think, David, it was kind of touted that she was ready to take over. It was a different kind of vice presidency, oh, wasn't yeah, it? Oh, yeah, it was, it was. But she's, she's sunk without trace. Um, and, you know, it, it looks like he's heading back for the White House. Just looking at this poll of polls in the Sunday Times today, um, Biden's uh, ratings seem to be falling quite precipitously. Uh, now, it's only one poll of polls and, you know, the campaign will count for a lot. Uh, but the thing that worries a lot of people, it certainly worries me, is that Trump is prepared for office in his terms now in a way that he wasn't eight years ago. Uh, he has, he's got a list of targets, individuals, 
And uh, you, you may remember the first months of his presidency uh, were totally chaotic. I, I think they'll be chaotic, but in an organised way this time. Yeah, <laughs> It's just interesting, a piece here in The Times um, from New Hampshire, um, <clears throat> the journalist describing the old boys playing cribbage at the country club by the frozen lake. And she says, almost everyone agreed that Donald Trump was a bully. He was brash, arrogant and was not averse. One of them said he'd heard from a caddy to using a foot wedge in golf. That's breaking the rules to kick the ball into the hole. But interestingly enough... Which I mean, among the things he has been accused of is relatively <laughs> low on the list. Well, it is actually, yes. But none of these was going to stop them from actually voting for him. But despite that, one of them said... And um, if it came down to Biden versus Trump, he'd vote for Trump. Hell, I'd vote for a dead dog over Biden. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that could be where it's really coming from. You know, it is Biden, Trump. And Biden seems to have so little energy these days. I mean, I wouldn't vote for him. The, well, de- the Democratic Party seems to have zero energy. They don't seem to be able to cope with a- anything that Trump does. I mean, the, the, the well, Democra- now, hold on a minute. Biden stands alone in a record as having, whatever about the popular vote, having beaten uh, Donald Trump in the uh, Electoral College. He then had a very successful set of midterms for somebody who is an incumbent president. If you look at what he has achieved so far in terms of economy and jobs, the state is going. If you look at it in material fact terms, it's hard not to say Biden's doing well. Well, I think I was making a slightly different point. I, 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 I agree with you. I was talking about the, 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 the Democratic Party in terms of the, 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 the looming election. I mean, where's their plan B? Is Kamala Harris going to be replaced? Who are the other individuals in the background? I don't know. I wonder, are there? I, I, I just sense that the, the Democrats have lost whatever energy they had. And it's not unheard of for a, for a Democratic president not to stand. Linda B. Johnson did it in uh, 1968. And we, uh, and again, people who say the United States are in turmoil, they were shooting presidents on the streets in the 60s. Things are not as bad as they were then. But it is, it, it is, again, it's almost a cliche now at this stage, but to think that the greatest democracy on earth, which it still is, uh, can only stand um, these two punters is, is pretty shocking. OK, we, we, have, we have to reconvene in autumn to uh, decide who was right in respect <laughs> of, what oh, was it, immigration, whether or not <clears throat> that would be the big political issue. Let's have your, your prediction. If we're going to reconvene in, in let's do it in November then, because then we'll have the election results. Who's winning it, Trump or Biden? Winning the election, yeah. Uh, I'd put my money on Trump. I'm afraid I'd put my money on Trump as well with a heavy heart. Unfortunately, Trump. Well, if you've any of you uh, five three one zero six at a cost of thirty cent or eight seven fourteen hundred one zero six, an interesting thing sent to John. Really, just say this is the greatest democracy on earth. It's <laughs> barely America. A America. America. Is, uh, my kids just are planning to go back and live. America ran apartheid until nineteen sixty four. Didn't give women the vote until nineteen twenty. It had slavery until, what, 1850-ish? It gave us Elvis Presley. That, that's and a fine point. <laughs> does one make up for and the it's other? Still, and it's, and it's, still, it's still a shelter for the, for the poor and, and the masses of the planet. It is still a, a, a democracy where one can advance themselves, where they're not, where you're not discriminated by old world um, just make, monikers such as Sir and your, make, and your second make, name. One brief point. Uh, my 20-year-old son, his cohorts and his pals no interest in going to America. Regard America as, you know, sort of a place that's decrepit and, and corrupt. Can you remember when we were that age? America was where it was at. We all wanted to get the J-1 visas and go out there and experience it. It's lost its allure, I'll tell you, among the new generation, whatever. But uh, uh, Behind the times again. 
David Davenpower, John Lee, I should say David Davenpower, uh, broadcaster, commentator, John Lee, executive editor of the Daily Mail Group, Valerie Cox, journalist and author. Guys, thank you all very much. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.